It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week we'll be discussing Labour's growing problem with anti-Semitism and whether there is an economic case for Brexit. To discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by James Blitz, one of the FT's leader writers, Robert Strimsley, a columnist and managing editor of FT.com, Martin Wolfe, our chief economics commentator, and Andrew Lilko, who's chairman of Economists for Britain. Thank you all for joining. So, on to the main political issue this week, which has been Labour and anti-Semitism. Prominent members of the party have once again been making offensive comments that have hit the headlines and caused a headache for Jeremy Corbyn. This included the MP for Bradwood West, Naz Shah, who's had the Labour whip withdrawn, and Ken Livingstone, the former mayor of London. Mr Livingstone did a tour of the TV studios on Wednesday, which resulted in a 20-minute discussion on whether Hitler was a Zionist before he went mad in 1933. Those are Ken Livingstone's words, not mine. So James Blitz, to begin, we did a leader in the FT this week which looked at this increasing Jewish problem, as it might be described, in Labour. And I don't think we could have believed when we were discussing this it could have escalated even more, and it has. Where does all this end in your view? Well, I don't think it ends quickly, is my immediate response. There's lots of talk by Tom Watson today about the need for Labour to look at its structures. I think if you're going to understand it, you've got to drill down to what this is about. In my view, the central issue is the approach Labour takes towards Israel. That is, I think, the key issue. It's perfectly reasonable, as we argued in our leader, to be critical of Israel. This newspaper is critical of Israel, especially over the stance it takes on the settlements and the Palestinian issue. But what is also important is that that is approached in a proportionate way. And by proportionate, I mean that it not only takes into account the plight of the Palestinians, the contemporary plight of the Palestinians, but also that it takes into account the reasons why the State of Israel came into existence in 1948. And it came into existence as a result of the Holocaust of European Jewry and the catastrophe that afflicted the Jews. And I think the reason why Labour has a problem is that it is unable to, when in its discussion, to incorporate that side of things, this broader understanding of what the issues around Israel are. And as a result, it, a number of its members get into pejorative language, which is offensive not only to Jews in Israel, but also to Jews in Britain. So one of the things that we've seen is this conflation between what they call anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, this idea that you can, you know, and people seem to swap these terms interchangeably without really understanding the difference. When you touch on the word Zionist, you are making a very important point. As far as I'm concerned, it is perfectly reasonable to be a Zionist. I would regard myself as non-practicing Jew. Nonetheless, I would describe myself as a Zionist in terms of the fact that I believe the state of Israel has a right to exist. It's essential that the state of Israel exists as a homeland for the Jews. And when people take a pejorative view of that and use the word Zionist in a very loose way... It is very offensive, and that is, I think, the problem that the Labour Party has. I think it's very important also to understand 
the historic origins of the, the really deep-rooted anti-Zionist movement. The campaign against political Zionism took its lead from the Soviet Union, which realised after the creation of the State of Israel, which it initially supported, that it had made a mistake because Israel was looking to the West and looking to America. And in the era, particularly after the 1967 war, the Soviet Union started pushing out increasingly angry and vitriolic and anti-Semitic tirades against Zionism, which it portrays not merely as a belief in the state of Israel, but as a belief in a world conspiracy perpetrated by Jewish capitalists and influence peddlers who pulled in the United States as an instrument of American imperialism. This is the origins of the anti-Zionist movement in the left of British politics, in the hard left of British politics. And the problem is those attitudes have percolated through to some of the people who campaign most vociferously against Israel. Now, James is absolutely right. Of course, it's legitimate to attack the Israeli government over things they are doing at the moment. I would attack it myself over many of the things it's doing. But when you start talking about it in terms of Zionist conspiracies and seeing the world through that prism, then you're skirting very dangerously close to an anti-Semitic view of the world. But that's exactly what we saw with Ken Livingstone this week, who, as I said earlier, appeared up on TV to discuss the Naz Shah incident, which uh, kicked it all off. And for those who haven't seen it, Naz Shah posted some very offensive pictures on social media before she became an MP, which suggests many things about conspiracies and trying to move Israel into America and just use the words um, transportation and solution, which, again, were very offensive. But I just don't understand what Ken was trying to say yesterday. It was all seemed very confused. And this idea about Hitler being a Zionist, can you shed any light on what that was about? Oh, well, I'd have to climb inside Ken Livingston's brain to do that, and I'm not sure I'm entirely equipped so to do. But let me have a, um, have a go. It is striking, incidentally, that when Ken Livingston went out to defend what Naz Shah had done, he did it after she had profusely and I thought rather sincerely and movingly apologised for it. So that's even more remarkable. But essentially, he takes the view that any attack over this issue is an attack on the Corbynite cause, is an attack on the anti-Israel cause, and therefore is politically motivated. And he has to go out and defend it. Now, five, ten years ago, Ken Livingston would have defended it rather cleverly and savvily. Something's gone a bit wrong, and he just lost the plot, I'm afraid. He said not only the things you've mentioned. He said, for example, anti-Semitism is not anti-Semitism if you only hate Jews in Israel. It was an extremely bizarre. He said anti-Semitism is not really racism. It is a different sort of racism. It was an extremely odd interview for a man who was trying to help. And I'm sure that Jeremy Corbyn was just completely livid at the thought that somebody he considers quite a close ally who shares his rough worldview, at least, should have gone out and been so incredibly incendiary and incompetent. In a week, let's, let's not forget, we're only a week from elections that are deeply important to the Labour Party. And what people are talking about at the moment, this week, instead of all the things the Conservatives are getting wrong, the junior doctor strike, they're talking about whether Labour has a problem with racism at its very core. James, one, I suppose the question is, how much has the rise of Jeremy Corbyn and the hard left contributed to this? Because as Robert said, Ken and Jeremy have a similar worldview, but I don't think anyone is suggesting that Jeremy is anti-Semitic. But there's certainly a culture that has appeared in the Labour with rise of the hard left. You know, but over the last few months, there's been more and more of these incidents. Yes, I think it's an important question. I think a number of things have happened. Well, first of all, obviously, Jeremy Corbyn and what I would describe as the hard left have taken over the leadership of the Labour Party. They did so as a result of a whole range of things, including the leadership rule changes introduced by Ed Miliband, which allowed entryism. If that hadn't happened, we wouldn't be discussing this. That's the first thing. I think one's also then, I think, got to try and look at what the deeper roots are, why it is that the British left is so engaged in its way on these issues. I think there are 
two or three factors. One of them is, I think, that they have traditionally looked for the kind of oppressor organisation or state. And and I think left-wing organisations often try and do that. When I was at university in the 1980s, South Africa and apartheid were the key issues on people's minds. That was the oppressor state. And then I think with the rise of Mandela and the, and, and the, and the end of white minority rule in South Africa, the, the story moved on. And I think a lot of people on the left see Israel through that prism, through the prism of apartheid and an oppressor state. And I think often import language which is not really relevant to the Israeli case. That's one issue. I think the second thing is that I think that Laban, and this is a delicate issue, it needs to deal with radical Islamist thinking in some of its communities on these issues. So you've got a hard left, which is looking for the oppressor state, but you've also got a Muslim community, parts of which, not all of which, even it's actually a small minority of which, has got some very inflammatory and aggressive language. And I think that the Labour leadership is unable to deal with that, and a lot of that has been imported in. So very broadly, that is why I think this is a much more long-term structural problem than people think. I think one of the bigger issues here, Jeremy Corbyn has seized all this as an attack on his leadership. And that's why one of the reasons why he's so determined to push back. There's a bunker mentality when he sees Labour moderates attacking him. He thinks it's politically motivated. But the issue, I think, and to go back to your question you raised at the beginning, Seb, is how does this end? The issue is moderate mainstream members of the Labour Party have got to decide if this is any good for them, if this is a good look for a party that wants to be in government. And sooner or later, they're going to have to make a decision, which is, can we allow ourselves to go forward right through to 2020 with a leadership that takes this view? Or have we actually got to stand up and try and fight back against this? I suppose one interesting thing that's going to be is next week, which is a bunch of local elections, but also the London mayor election you wrote, a column on it on this topic, Robert, about Sadiq Khan, who was one of the first people to say Ken Livingston should be suspended from the Labour Party. I don't know if he's called for him to be expelled yet, but it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in the London election, whether it affects Labour's performance across the country. I think it will certainly affect Labour's performance across the country. I think in London, Sadiq Khan is a very strong candidate, a very attractive candidate, who, as you say, has been at the forefront of opposing what Jeremy Corbyn's failures. He's also running against, I think, probably a fairly weak Conservative candidate. So my guess would be that he will win. And the issue for people is whether Jeremy Corbyn's supporters attempt to draw from the victory in London, which may well be their only big win in next week's elections, proof that they have a winning strategy for the party. One of the things we've been quite bullish in the FT's leader line, James, is about Labour moderates taking action against what's going on here. Because it's not just allowing these views to develop, it's sheer incompetence as well that we saw yesterday. The idea that it took these hours and Ken went from TV studio to TV studio, making more and more offensive comments until he was eventually suspended. Whereas the same with Naz Shah, that it was a media build-up. There's a certain sense here that the media are the ones doing the scrutiny into Labour, not the party. I'm sorry, I just have to add, just for our own, it's always worth repeating the fact that he did end up hiding in a disabled toilet in the middle of his media blitz. So I think it's always worth throwing that one in. Exactly. He'd come out of a TV studio and to avoid the press pack, decided to sneak away into the disabled toilet to 
I don't know. I know it's a side issue, but it's one that I enjoy saying. I don't really know. I mean, you're asking the question, are moderates going to do something about should it? Should they? You know, sure, is of it, course yeah. they should do something. There's no question about it. Look, this is where I disagree with Robert. I, have, I put it differently. I mean, it's partly a question of look, obviously, the impression to serious people. But this is an absolutely fundamental issue of principle, as far as I'm concerned. I think that people like Nashar, whatever, I don't know Nashar, and I don't, whether she's acted out of malice or whatever, I, I don't know. What I'm absolutely certain of is that her comments reflect a deep, deep ignorance about history, about things which really should be essential for a mainstream political organisation in the Western world and democratic society. And so I don't know how long the Labour moderates want to wait. I mean, I'm not a member of the Labour Party. I sort of observe it from the outside. Tactically, how long they're going to put up with not only this, but also Corbyn's flirtation, or not flirtation, but his, his approach towards hard left issues is unclear. But I certainly think for some people, if this isn't properly dealt with, and that means setting out in very, very clear terms the distinction between being critical of Israel and using pejorative and disproportionate language. If that is not set out properly, and it's going to damage Labour's reputation permanently. And I think the way to look at this is to ask yourself what a really effective political leader would have done this week faced with this crisis. What a Blair, a Brown, a, a Cameron, what any of these people would have done is the first thing they would have done is called an immediate inquiry. Then they would have stood up and made a major speech about how this kind of behaviour has no place in the Labour Party. They would have wouldn't just given a quick interview or put out a statement. They'd have rammed it home. They'd have cited the terms that were unacceptable. They'd have cited the behaviour that was unacceptable. And they'd have done it in a way and in a forum that made you think they were saying what they actually felt. They would have given a lead and taken on the elements in their party that were responsible for this. Jeremy Corbyn's response is to say, this is a small matter. We're dealing with it. It's really just people who are frightened of my movement at a local level. And now to go back to the EU referendum and in particular where there is an economic case for Brexit. In one of his columns this week, Martin Wolf has argued that there is actually not and there's a big problem with the case being put forward by Leave campaigners. So Martin, I believe you had 10 points. I'm not asking you to bring up all the 10 points, but for our listeners, can you give us a sample of what you think these myths are about the Brexit case, the economic case for leaving the EU and why you've decided to sort of battle these away this week? Well, let's just consider a few of them. I think we should first set it in a very crucially, the way to frame the debate is on the one side we're in, we know roughly what that means. And on the other side, we're going to be, end up leaving in some way. I think one of the big problems which we have to get to is the lack of definition of what this alternative is. So it's very difficult to argue about because we don't know what it would be. And there are lots of conflicts and contradictions on that. But in terms of the arguments that are made, here are a few of the obvious ones. We are suffering from incredibly terrible regulation from the EU. If we got rid of this, we will be utterly transformed. The evidence is pretty clear. Standard international evidence is that actually we're a pretty highly deregulated economy. And we've had very strong proof of this in a crucial area, which a lot of Brexiteers, if I may use that word, emphasise the labour market, because our labour market performance has been absolutely extraordinary, successful. The view of many on the Brexit camp seems to be that somehow or other we can leave while retaining all the essential access we have to the EU market without any real problems and without suffering from any 
constraints, for example, on accepting free movement of labour. Now, I point out that we don't know what the others will offer us. I think they are very likely to be punitive, but it's pretty clear that if we do want to preserve access to EU markets, and many people on the Brexit side say we must preserve that access, that we're going to have to accept free movement of labour and we're going to actually end up accepting most of the regulations we hate so much. Of course, there are alternatives to that. We could leave altogether and pursue unilateral free trade, but I think that's a sort of fantasy offer. It's not something that anyone would propose. I'm not going to go through all the other items. It will get rather lengthy. But it seems to me if you go through all the arguments, another one, for example, is that the Eurozone might break up. And if we were outside the EU, that somehow we'd be protected from the consequences of that. But I point out that under any assumptions, they're going to be our biggest market for the indefinite future. So if the Eurozone breaks up, we're going to be pretty severely affected. Similarly, the EU economy is not doing terribly well. That's true. Our trade with the rest of the world will grow as a result. We would hope that will be the case. But being a member of the EU isn't preventing us from trading with the rest of the world. And I actually argue we're far more likely to get good market access to the rest of the world through negotiations via the EU than on our own. And I think President Obama's intervention makes that clear. He may not be able to speak for Britain, but he certainly can speak for America. So there are quite considerable difficulties and many points I haven't discussed in this with the Brexit case. So Andrew Lillicold, the issue is, Sanchez Martin put it there, is that we don't know what Brexit would look like. You know, there's a lot of uncertainties around it. And as part of your group Economists for Britain, you're making the case for Brexit. What do you say to people like Martin who say, well, these are all the problems with your case. Give us a solution and we can discuss it because there isn't really a picture you'd want to paint of what a post-Brexit economy would look like for Britain. Well, I think the key feature of a post-Brexit economy is that we wouldn't be in the EU. I think that arguing about the detail of exactly what we would do once we were outside the EU is unreasonable because it's not the government putting forward the policy. So if it were a government that were holding a referendum saying that it wanted to do something, then you would expect it to have some detail as to exactly what it would do afterwards. But because the government is proposing to remain, it's for the other side to say, well, we don't want to continue with that. It's, of course, afterwards, if we didn't continue with that, we'd have to debate about what we did instead. But the alternative to being in the EU is not some other kind of thing, uh, some other specific thing. It's not being in the EU. It's also, I think, a mistake to think that the fundamental feature of the EU is that it's some kind of trade agreement. The EU is not a trade agreement. In fact, it's not really an economic question at all, I would say. It's mainly a political project for good and for ill. But insofar as it is about trade, I would characterise it as a means by which we do adapt and we enforce our trading arrangements with the European Union partners. It isn't itself a trade agreement. Another thing I think to grasp about this point about the EU being fundamentally for good and for ill, a political project, is that the main arguments for leaving aren't about the economy. So I'm not going to claim, I don't want to claim, that we should be leaving the EU in order to make some large economic gain. I think that by around 2030, things would be around neutral. I think that we'd be pretty balanced either way on the economy, by which I mean you should expect GDP per capita to be plus or minus 2% of what it would be, regardless of whether we left or remained. Over the longer term, we might start to gain a bit. It would very much depend on what we did outside. But the key point that I want to get across is that it isn't that I'm saying there are large gains economically from leaving. What I want to say is that there's neither much in the way of gains nor losses, and the key arguments for staying or for leaving should be on the political side. Well, actually, this gives us quite a bit of common ground, but also some real problems. My view of the evidence is that the probability is that there will be losses, 
They will be larger than this, 5% of GDP or so, but they're uncertain. And we're talking this over 15 years, 15 or so years. I don't think there's any doubt that the short-term losses will be considerable because there will be simply a huge period of uncertainty. I think it's already affecting the economy. It will affect investment very considerably. People won't know the terms on which we're trading. People will be unsure about our future economic arrangements. Indeed, as Andrew says, the government that is going to come up with the new policy doesn't exist, and it, we don't know what it is. And the process of negotiations, I mean, I'm not trying to be fanciful. I think we're talking about negotiations that would last five to ten years. So it's an immensely long period of uncertainty, and people have to take this leap into the dark being honest about that. Now, it's political and economic, though I think for the UK, on the, our present terms of relationships, we're not in the euro, we are now clearly not committed to ever close a union, we have all sorts of exemptions in the system. It's not really a political project for us. It's a political project for them, but it's not for us. And finally, I don't think it's good enough to say, well, it's for the government afterwards to sort out policy after the EU is because it really makes a difference. Is the new government going to propose out of this that we stop all immigration from the EU or are we going to encourage it freely? I can go through so many examples. You've got to make a rational choice is between at least A, B, C, D and E, not A and God knows what. Sure. So maybe if I just sketch a little of the kinds of things that I would expect might happen so that one could see why I think it would be reasonable to believe we, things should be fairly neutral by around 2030. And just to say, I mean, 5%. So the OECD, for example, suggests we'd be down uh, about 5% of GDP by 2030. But in terms of GDP per capita, they expect there would be a 2% smaller rise in the population. So the GDP per capita figure is actually close to 3% down. So it's only just a bit outside what I would think was a, a reasonable range of uncertainty around zero. Furthermore, just to get an idea of how much that is, the OBR adjusted down its 2018 GDP forecast by 1% between November 2015 and March 2016. So these sorts of percentage changes over a 15-year period are quite modest. Let me spell out a few reasons why I think we might gain, though. I think that one very important gain that we would make out of leaving the EU is we would allow the EU to evolve in such a way that the Eurozone became the same thing as the EU. I think that the Eurozone's governance issues are significantly connected with the fact that it can't form new treaties because of the political difficulties of doing that, which means that it's very difficult for it to get as far as having a proper Eurozone parliament or a Eurozone president or the other kinds of mechanisms needed for it to have a treasury and debt, raise its debts and things like that. I think once we end the anomaly of the non-Euro EU, which I think would be a consequence of the UK leaving, then the EU will be able to use its existing institutions. That will make it work better, grow faster to our benefit. A second thing, just one other thing I'd say, is I think outside the EU, we're likely to do better in terms of our trade deals with the rest of the world, with the non-EU. Why? Because the UK in the EU, although the EU has a lot of weight, it also has a lot of interests. And so that means that deals get stymied. So we would long ago have had a deal with the Japanese and Australians, for example, but those have been stymied by uh, debates with others, the Germans in the case of the Japanese, the Italians in the case of the Australians. So I think we'd be more flexible. And because more than two thirds of our trade would be with the non-EU by around 2030, we don't need to gain as much on our non-EU trade as we lose on our EU trade per unit of trade. So it, we can actually afford to lose more per unit of trade on the EU trade than we gain on the rest of the world trade in order for, for us to be balanced. I won't go any further into interpreting the losses. I think they're larger than ever suggested, but we, I think the OECD has been actually quite modest. But there are, on the two other really big issues he raised, he is suggesting that the problems of the euro area will be resolved 
if not only the UK, but presumably all the other non-Euro members of the EU were to depart or join the Euro. I think, well, we don't know what Sweden and others would do. But Now, I must say that I find that a rather strange position for us to take because presumably the people in the euro area aren't incredibly stupid. If they could see that that's a necessity, we should do that. And therefore, they should have reached the conclusion, look, you guys are really not very clear you want to stay in. We'd really like you to go. And that would allow us to control these institutions and manage the eurozone better. And then we would have a strong campaign from the Germans, the French, the Italians, the Spanish, saying, please leave, simplify our lives so we can actually get on with this. But on the contrary, as far as I can see, they all want us to stay. And this suggests to me that unless they really don't understand their own interests at all, which seems to me quite implausible, that they recognise we're not an obstacle to their going ahead and solving their problems. And we aren't. The obstacles are that they actually don't really know how to create the institutions and don't have the will to do so. On the trade side, here we've got a trade-off. I think that's clear. The EU as a collectivity has a tremendous amount of clout, and where it agrees, it can produce very powerful, very deep trade results. And that was most obviously the case, as I pointed out, in the really great world trade negotiations in which the EU was a central part, the Kennedy-Tokyo and Uruguay rounds. Since I'm not wildly keen on preferential trade agreements, I don't feel these are quite as important, but it's still the truth that the EU has huge clout. Now, I've, there's no doubt the UK could probably sign up to fairly superficial, fairly easy trade deals with large parts of the world. But with the markets that really matter to us, which I think in the future are going to be the US, China and India, I think, and where issues that matter to us, like financial services, are going to be very sensitive, I think we're just not going to get anything that's really worthwhile. And in the trading goods, well, the truth is we don't have a much of a comparative advantage in that area. And very finally, Andrew, I've just got one last question for you, which is a point we made a few minutes ago, was about this idea, the honesty of not giving a vision here. So you've talked about some ideas about what it could be without painting, this is what it's going to look like. Not everybody in the Leave campaign has done that, and there's been a lot of ambiguity around it. I understand your point that it's not, you know, you are not the government, your campaign is not going to be creating this. But does that not make it quite difficult to win people over? Because as Martin said earlier, the Brexit case does involve a lot of uncertainty. Is that going to be a big problem, do you think? Or do you think that the benefits you talk about will outweigh that? I think one of the issues is that the Remain camp and, of course, others are, journalists and so on, are keen to place the UK's agreement in some box or other. So what they want to say is, if you say we're going to do something in the style of Canada, then let's go and look at the details of the Canadian agreement. And then we'll say, well, if there's any drawbacks of the Canadian agreement, then those are drawbacks that you're signing up to. Or if there's any drawbacks in the Norwegian agreement, those are the ones you're signing up to. But no, the UK's agreement wouldn't be like anybody else's agreement. The UK is much more significant trading partner to the EU than any of the other smaller ones, Norway's and so on, the deals that they have. So it would be a different sort of a deal. It's a mistake to think that the deal that we would have is exactly like anybody else's deal as it stands now. So I think that because you can't produce that sort of model and because everybody tries to shove things in the way to characterise what's being done as sitting in one of those boxes, I think that's really why people are very resistant to accepting any specific characterisation of what they want to do. Well, and the debate goes on and you can continue following it in the FT and in hopefully future podcasts. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next Saturday for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.